Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of Dots of Thoughts. Today, I'll be reflecting on a book, a photographic book that I've been spending some time with. And by that, this takes me and you, the listener, all the way to Nepal. Nepal is a country in South Asia. For those of you who don't know, it is located mainly in the Himalayas. It is the 49th largest country by population and the 93rd largest country by area. It is landlocked and borders China in the south. India in the south, east, and west, while Bangladesh is located just 27 kilometers towards its southern eastern tip. And this part is very interesting for me because while we were in Bangladesh earlier this year, we got to a point where I saw a sign pointing towards Nepal, and I thought, wow. And there's also Bhutan. Bhutan is separated from it by the Indian state of Sikkim. Okay, I have just almost quoted Wikipedia verbatim. But seriously, Nepal is one of those places. You've always known, but didn't know that you knew. For instance, if you've heard of Mount Everest, yes, the highest point on earth, then you've heard of Nepal. As a matter of fact, it has 8 out of 10 of world's tallest mountains. Wow, I would like to go to Nepal myself and experience all of that. I know that what I've done here, that is to say, rattling off numbers and Wikipedia information is almost somewhat reductive. So you know what? If you do not know about Nepal, I suggest you pause this podcast at this point, go do some quick reading online so as to have a frame of reference. Then get back here and continue listening. And while we're at it, let me use this opportunity to digress a bit. This is a podcast that's been going on for some time now on the platform called Nkata Podcast Station. We've come to realize from the feedback of all you wonderful, generous listeners out there that the podcast truly feels a need. So we have created a a Patreon page, just in case you are wondering how you could support and literally add your two cents to the work we're doing. So for more information about this, check out nkatapodcast.com slash Patreon. And Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Okay, back to the book. The book in question is called Dalit, A Quest for Dignity. It is a book that, according to the introduction text, came about as an attempt to create a visual archive of the Dalit experience in modern Nepal. Now you're probably asking, what is Dalit? It is actually a who, not a what. Dalit is a category of caste and social classification linked to the Sanskrit word Dalita, which could mean divided, broken, split, or scattered. It was repurposed in the 19th century to mean a person who does not belong to one of the Brahminic castes or a person considered the untouchables of the Hindu caste system. So this book, as the title implies, attempts to articulate the quest for dignity of the Dalit people or those who consider themselves Dalit. The book was put together by the Nepal Picture Library based in Kathmandu and edited by Vivas Raja. Nepal Picture Library is a project that acts as a memory of a country and of a culture from which photography is a way to attest their existence in a social body. And this is something that I picked up from somewhere online about, about the project. What I find interesting about the book is that, right from the introduction text, it brings to the fore this most disturbing question about the position and ethics of photography. Since the invention of photography, the medium has gone through some interesting process of interrogation and inquiry. From it being first and foremost a scientific slash technological discovery, 
to being an art form and then reverting to questioning its legitimacy as an art form, then to the role it played in wars and the documentation of wars, the documentation of humanitarianism, but also in anthropology, ethnography, the racialization, ordering and othering of the world. Yes, there have been all these questions, yet these questions are as valid today as they have been throughout the 170 years of the existence of photography. And I like that this book is courageous enough to engage the question, how does photography explore to the fullest the possibility to ascribe beauty, agency, dignity, and not least of all, legality to oppressed people, disenfranchised people, marginalized people, without falling back to this other aspect of photography, which, on one hand, contributes to inundation, desensitization, and apathy due to its proliferation and often heavy-handed display of misfortune and suffering. But also, on the other hand, serves to reinforce delineating lines of ordering and orderness. For me, it comes together in these lines in the book. I quote, There are also questions about the ethics of depicting human beings caught up in inhumane conditions, of showing people engaged in political strife, of uncomfortably bearing the pain of maimed and crushed bodies, and yet finding ways to present the basic dignity and stubborn beauty that thrives even among subjects covered in sweat, dirt, and blood. All of this relates image-making to the challenges of world-making. The key words there, for me, are in the last sentence. All of this relates image-making to the challenges of world-making. And by that, this book, although dealing with the past, while working with and in the urgency of the present, fits perfectly in the future we are all heading to. It speaks of image-making in relation to world-making. That is to say, every image in this book although operating in a context-specific milieu of the Nepali Dalit's lives, strives to speak to some place beyond itself. Flipping through the book, one gets a sense that the makers of the project and the editor of the book retained their sensitivity towards these questions already expanded, but most importantly, the relation between image-making and world-making. In line with this image-making-world-making relation, I am also interested in how we can inject the history and practice of photography with new context and frame of references. I am of the belief that much of the needful humane work to be done in our time is not so much about what newer knowledges are produced or acquired, as much as it is about how old knowledges are reimagined and rehistoricized. In more precise terms, we are in the thick middle of a volatile negotiation between the past and present, whereby knowledges from many other parts of the world thought to have been buried or rendered impotent are, today, rising from the sidewalks and off-paths where, for many centuries, they were relegated to the shadows of Western hegemony. Thus, when we speak of a one world today, it is no longer in a generalized sense for which the seat of hegemony is solely located in the Occident. A one world is a complex world wherein the notion of scale, distance, identity, and location are perpetually expanding and contracting, all of which points to a multi-contextual world. And anyone who's progressive in our time ought to open themselves to this new way of being in the world, whether you are European, Asian, African, Latin American, or from the Caribbean, so that we can all be useful in the making of a world that is more relational and therefore more humane. This book from the Nepal Picture Library is a powerful response and contribution to the challenges of this multi-contextual world-making. Anyway, 
before I get carried away by all the thoughts flowing in my head. Let me make this into a dialogue by reaching out to Divas Raja, the editor of the book in question. Let us see how far we can expand on some of the intentions as well as operative premise of the book, Dalit, A Quest for Dignity. Let me put the call through. Hello. Hi, Amika. Great to hear your voice. Yes. Such a long time. Yes, yes. Such a long time, huh? Um, yes, since okay, uh, yeah. 2019. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Have you been? Been fine. I've been fine. Um, how about you? All right. I mean, it's been p- pretty crazy out there. Has things been going uh, in, uh, you are in Kathmandu, right? Right. Great. Has things been yeah. going there? It's all right. Not as bad as many other countries. But the cases are sort of spiking about now, uh, after two months of lockdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it looks like it's going to go on for some time longer. Mm-hmm. Where are you in Germany right now? Yes, I'm in Berlin. Yeah. I see. Yeah. How are things there? Things are kind of like, uh, it feels like, uh, you know, almost, almost that life is going on as usual here. As if there's nothing. Ah. Almost. Uh. Right. So the, lock- the lockdown's been over. It's not entirely over, but um, it's going really, really easy compared to so many other places. Right. Yeah. And are there a lot of cases? Uh, very few in Berlin and even few, you know, compared to other places in Europe, you know, right. even fewer in Germany. Well, I hope you've been careful washing your hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've been doing all of that. Uh. So um, I've been reflecting or sort of like spending time with you know, the book I got from you while we were in Chennai. And I'm so happy that I was able to get this book from you. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, because I think it's a really powerful book. Uh, Thank you so much. So so this podcast is basically discussing the book. And I singled out a line from your introduction text, Mm. which refers to this notion of relating image making to the challenges of world making. Right. And maybe we should um, um, use this as a as an entry point into discussing the premise of the book. Right. Sure. That sounds good. So, I mean, the book is a kind of an experiment in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are two things that we are trying to do, uh, which we explain in the uh, opening as well. Mm-hmm. One is to sort of uh, see... Uh, given that uh, you know the hist- histories of marginalized peoples mm-hmm. or histories from the margin or of the margin is so difficult to write, partly because of, uh, especially in countries like ours where the archives aren't there, uh, records aren't there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, I think for the large part, historians and those of us who are interested in examining the past have had to rely on clever ways of sort of looking at these histories, mm-hmm. you know, how we can talk about um, uh, deeper histories of marginalized people or uh, more obscure parts of our history. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was one of the the intention of the book is to see if there is a way, given that there is so much so much dearth of material, that we can still uh, still attempt to create something, a kind of a generative account um, of a sort of a forgotten past of uh, exploitation, uh, abuse, and marginality uh, in Nepal. Mm-hmm. That was definitely a priority. Mm-hmm. The second priority for the second experimentation for us was to, uh, given that uh, so much of history is written through text, 
Uh-huh. Uh, we wanted to see what would happen, what kind of uh, creativity we can bring into history telling if we approached it f- through images. Uh, and part of it is kind of our own bias, clearly, because yeah. we work with photographs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's sort of, um, it's uh, it, it's in our interest to kind of uh, claim that actually there are ways to um, enter the past, enter history and these questions of inequality through image rather than uh, discursive means. Uh, that's clearly one of the motivation that's, uh, you know, that the, the line that you pointed out, mm-hmm. that's clearly one of the intention where it comes from. Mm-hmm. But I think the the kind of the the, the larger argument that uh, the claim rests on um, is the sort of the foundational uh, idea that actually we do create pictures of the world, mm-hmm. or that we do understand and approach the world in visual ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, that a central, a fundamental part of how we understand the world is visual. Yeah. Uh, and as much as we don't put uh, about describe it, we don't put that experience to into words uh that's something that functions in the way we uh, interact with other people in the world how we are in the world mm-hmm. uh, so the book is in a way a kind of an uh, a way to sort of uh, bring that to the surface uh so you'll really you'll notice that actually what we've done in the book is uh we don't have that much text we have yeah. tried to tell the history through images uh and we weren't quite sure if that would be very successful, but it was still a kind of a necessity for us to try to see if some kind of narrative, some kind of uh, witnessing of the past mm-hmm. uh, can be had just by looking at images. Before I called you, I have tried to give a very flimsy sort of like definition of who a Dalit is. Right. And so I think that before we even go into the book. Right, right. So like That's helping right. fleshing out, you know, really, you know, who... Right. Dalit is? Yeah, uh, good question. I mean, uh, you will know that, uh, you know, in under Hinduism, in mm-hmm. Hinduism, in South Asia, we have this thing called the caste system, mm-hmm. um, which you, I'm sure you've heard about, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is a kind of a system of hierarchy uh, that has uh, diversified as well as transformed over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's something that goes back um, centuries and thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's some of the first records uh, of the caste system you'll find in scriptures from nearly 2,000 years mm-hmm. uh, ago. So the caste system is, a you know, in every society you'll see ways in which uh, differences and especially labor um, has been stratified and diverse, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like so we yeah. talk about division of labor, mm-hmm. menial, not just the difference between menial, menial and mental f- types of labor, mm-hmm. but a lot of societies do create more sort of complex stratifications of labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the caste system, on the one hand, you can understand as uh, a kind of a stratification of labor. Mm-hmm. But what's really unique about the caste system in South Asia is that in addition to that, the more economic and social function of these stratifications, there's also a, a ritual and religious religious function that's mm-hmm. added to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in a way uh, that, uh, you know, the uh, kind of the exploitation of the poor, um, the, the cycles of poverty and debt that that the very poorest people in society are uh, kept in through some of these uh, stratifications uh, are also given a ritual and symbolic and religious stamp by the caste system. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Th- that's the first thing to understand about the caste system. So the, the Dalit are um, 
And so we have a, four, a system that identifies four casts, mm-hmm. and within those casts, you'll find hundreds of different subcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but Dalits are considered what used to be called the untouchables, mm-hmm. and they are uh, Dalits are the people who were considered so low in that hierarchy mm-hmm. that they they don't even actually have a caste designation. So they wow. are the fifth category below the four caste systems mm-hmm. uh, that they are considered so low. That they don't even deserve a kind of a caste. So, system. so the the caste system, the four caste system, is already like um, arranged in hierarchy. Yeah. Of exactly. which the Dalit does not even belong. Yeah. So they're they're even below the lowest caste, wow. uh, so to speak, right? Uh, but uh, so the older terms for so Dalit is a kind of a term that emerged in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the older terms uh, uh, that were used to refer to the people who belong to these castes, to these groups, uh, were like you know, in English. Sometimes you might hear untouchables, mm-hmm. uh, but there are other words in, uh, in vernacular terms we mm-hmm. use in India and Nepal. Um, mm-hmm and other South Asian countries, mm-hmm. but they were all terms of insult, you know, they mm-hmm. were sort of um, meant to sort of... Derogatory. Yeah, derogatory, and they were terms that humiliate uh, the group, mm-hmm. uh, the people who belong to that caste, mm-hmm. and it was a way of saying that you belong to that caste for whatever reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so Dalit was, a, you know, as these issues of, uh, as question, questions of equality, uh, social justice emerged in the 20th century, uh, so Dalit is a term that kind of emerges from the Dalit caste along with that. So the difference we have to recognize is that uh, as opposed to the older terms that were used to refer to uh, people belonging belonging to these groups, uh, Dalit is a term not of humiliation, but it's, it's used as a sort of a, a symbol of pride. So, you know, I think you'll see this in a lot of sort of, uh, in histories of a lot of, uh, histories of marginalized communities elsewhere too, mm-hmm. such as uh, the term gay, for example, for mm-hmm. LGBTI, mm-hmm. the term uh, queer, all of those were sort of pejorative terms that was sort of switched to give new sort of, uh, more sort of, celebratory sort of meanings, mm-hmm. um, such as the celebration of the term black as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, so it's, it's a similar kind of operation, okay. although Dalit is a sort of um, a term that was invented in the 20th century. The literal meaning of Dalit uh, is broken, yeah. you know, someone who's been oppressed so much that the person is broken. Yeah. Uh, but it's also laid with these sort of uh, meanings of uh, dignity mm-hmm. and pride. All right, very interesting, very interesting. We see that a lot reflected in the way you, you know, you handle the materials in the book. I was saying um, just before I called you that, you know, even going through the book, you, you get a sense of that, um, you know, those who put together the book, which is yourself and your team, um, were very much sensitive all the way to the material. And yeah, it felt like you were constantly asking, how do we, you know, bring all these images together in such a way that they will account really for that dignity because then we begin right. to see not just images of um of people but also some certain things that were part that are part of their culture and their lives right. like the you know farming tools like cutleries for eating um musical instruments documents can you speak about that a, a little bit yeah um yeah i think uh, when you look at the images that we've used in the book um, there's something curious going on in the sense that this issue of dignity of uh, of Dalit people 
is not something that you that is written in the images necessarily, or mm -hmm. not all of the images that were taken that we've in, in, uh, included in the book mm -hmm. uh, were taken with the intention of sh kind of showing uh, this sort of like a you know this yeah. uh, the the proud and yeah. celebratory mode of uh, being uh, Dalit. Uh, but we've had to sort of do a reading of the images and the photographs in a way that you can mine uh, those meanings from the images. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we've developed in the in, uh, book a kind of a technique of, uh, I think, an exercise of uh, reading images where uh, you begin to kind of broaden the horizon of the images, so mm -hmm. to speak, uh, so that you begin to ask questions about not only the making of the images, but also of the, the world uh, that that are hinted in the images, mm -hmm. but also the people that are in the images who we may not know much about from the photographs, you know, whose names we don't know about, whose uh, a lot of the things that a lot of the people we see in the images, we don't know anything about them, mm -hmm. uh, um, apart from the fact that they belong to that caste. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so that's a, the only mark that we have of them. And, and, the and, and another thing again is that I see, you know, when I, for example, when I started, I looked up your website, Nepal Picture Library online. The first thing that came out was, it's like this very practical side of what you do, which is calling on on the people to sort of like come and digitize their their, their photographs. And right. you have two categories to that. It's either you're doing it for a particular sum that people will pay and then the people will keep it as their own material or if they choose to donate it to the Nepal Picture Library, then you will do it free of charge. Yeah. I find that very interesting. So now I want to ask um, if you can speak about or speak on, you know, how you went about collecting all these images and if you can touch on some of the context within which mm. the images were made, who made them. For example, you will see this photograph of um, the uh, Dalit people dancing music, uh, sort of like a music festival or festivities going on. Right. And I'm wondering who made the photo. Um, could it right. be like a local photographer within the community or is it like uh, an explorer, you know, from Europe? Or can you speak on how the images uh, came to be? Right. Um, so the information about all the photographs that are used in the book uh, um, are in the book. So you can actually find um, the uh, photographers whenever possible mm -hmm. uh, who have taken the photographs, um, whether they were foreigners or local journalists mm -hmm. or what kind of uh, collections they came from mm -hmm. uh, in the book. Yeah. But uh, most, generally speaking, there were three types of archives that we've used for, in, in collating the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, the first collection came from uh, civil society organizations, mostly Dalit organizations based in Kathmandu and outside, yeah. uh, who have been working in the field uh, with uh, Dalit communities uh, for a few decades. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so we've approached them and some of them themselves also keep, uh, maintain their own archives or they would know about uh, other archives or they know people who have been around taking mm -hmm. photographs when important sort of events were happening. Mm -hmm. So so that was the one kind of uh, archive that we targeted was ones that were made by um, activists and civil society uh, members. Mm -hmm. uh, the second archive that we targeted was um, just personal albums that we knew that people who were close to the Dalit movement um, uh, or, so, for example, a wife of some an important leader who may have been still around. That's mm -hmm. actually one of the key 
uh, archive you'll see in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, she was someone who had been collecting photographs in her own home as, mm -hmm. in, as part of your, you know, like a regular private uh, personal album. Mm -hmm. uh, so we tried to target those kind of personal albums as well to see what kind of material we could get from that. Mm -hmm. um, and the third kind of collect, uh, archive that we used, uh, which uh, turned out to be very crucial for the project, was uh, the photographs that especially Americans uh, who had come to Nepal in the 60s, 70s, as part of the Peace Corps project, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, they had got a chance to travel all around Nepal. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, Nepal being a poor country at the time, especially in the 60s, hardly anyone apart from the very rich people of Nepal would have cameras. Mm -hmm. So there was no question of uh, finding a lot of people who were going out, taking photographs, or even, even if they were taking photographs, you wouldn't find that much uh, people taking, you know, because Dalits are, you know, who would want to take pictures of uh, Dalit people? Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So there isn't a lot of uh, photographic archive that was built by Nepalese in Nepal. Mm -hmm. uh, but but the Americans, uh, thankfully, were traveling and they had documented, they had photographed uh, a lot around Nepal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so there was, we knew uh, one person whose name is Doug Hull, uh, who had done this amazing work of collecting all the photographs that um, uh, Peace Corps volunteers had taken mm -hmm. in Nepal. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're we were lucky to uh, collaborate with him. And so a lot of the photographs that you mentioned mm -hmm. um, of the celebrations from the 60s or, or earlier, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of them are from the Peace Corps collection by different photo photographers and different young Americans who had been traveling in Nepal. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. Uh, earlier on, I was talking about the book um, in relation to like, it's a book that addresses the past while working in and with the urgency of the present, but mm. very much belongs to the future. Uh, I feel like right. that's how I arranged the book because of this, you know, relationship between image making and world making, which I feel right. like it was, it was really like an, every page had that where you're not just thinking about the specific context of, you know, um, Nepal and the Nepali Dalits, but right. you are also thinking on how that becomes sort of like a reference, right? you know, in a, in a world that is constantly or that is interconnected, that is always in relation. Right. Looking at the book now, even as, because I have the book with me here, I'm seeing that towards the end, we begin to see images of um, the political manifestations and protests. But then also we begin to see, I, I begin to feel, okay, that's it's like a sense of affirmation asserting themselves. But then we begin now to see also local photographers photographing them. Right. Can you speak uh, on this a bit? Right. Th that's very interesting you put it that way. I mean, although the book wasn't arranged uh, with that intention, mm -hmm. but that's definitely, I see how uh, you can make that reading of the mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. uh, part of the reason I think that uh, it appears that way is that we kept the political section at the very end, mm -hmm. uh, where the last section is about uh, the emergence of the, the emergence of the political movement around these issues, mm -hmm. the Dalit movement, uh, and because we kept it at the at the end, uh, where this issue of agency and uh, the fight for social justice around the issues of caste and humiliation based on caste systems uh, becomes much more active. Mm -hmm. uh, th that's very that's placed in the towards the end of the book, and I think that is the reason why it lends uh, that kind of visual idiom as well, mm -hmm. where you begin to see actually the Dalit uh, the photographs that the Dalits themselves were. Uh, making of themselves, mm -hmm. protesting, um, emerging, being active, 
you see what I think. Uh, I think you are right in that sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think what I'll add about what you said about uh, the question of world uh, making through mm-hmm. image making. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you're right. I mean, the book is, although the book we are looking t- towards the past, mm-hmm. the book is really about the about the future, mm-hmm. or it's really about the future of the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think uh, that's a very important sort of the message that we had in the book mm-hmm. is was that uh, was that the struggle for social justice is is a struggle. It's a battle, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it's and it's not one that's over or um or or accomplished because now we are in this sort of liberal democratic space mm-hmm. where we sort of nominally accept that you know the 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 past the history of the injustices of the caste system mm-hmm. uh, we see how atrocious it's been mm-hmm. but we are no longer like that mm-hmm. you know that mm-hmm. we have somehow improved as a lot mm-hmm. uh but we are i think constantly trying to show in the book that actually the legacies of the injustice of injustices of the past do continue Mm-hmm. in different ways mm-hmm. in, in in forms that we may not even recognize anymore mm-hmm. uh and and these sort of injustices transform over time even mm-hmm. in 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 uh, contemporary and uh in contemporary times mm-hmm. uh, uh which is the reason why uh the, the the movement against the caste system has is a sort of a movement to be fought in the in the future mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it's not something that's been finished in the past mm-hmm. so that's one kind of orientation of the of the book but the other issue i think built into that is that uh, the people who whose interest it is in maintaining the caste systems of the privileges that come from maintaining caste hierarchies uh we can't be so naive as to think that those people are also not fighting back mm-hmm. to keep uh, to maintain quo. so mm-hmm. to maintain the status quo exactly right uh so i think we have this we have a kind of an image that we have tried to create in the book that it's really a kind of a struggle between a, a group that that uh, will try will keep fighting to maintain that status quo mm-hmm. and the group who will keep pushing back against it mm-hmm. and so it's really i think we've tried to create a a picture of that of that struggle mm-hmm. um i was reflecting on this other angle of it uh in relation to the discipline that is photography yeah and the history and practice of photography which is that much of that history uh and the references you know like all the thinking that's been done you know around photography and how it operates and what it can do and what it should do all the right. examples all the references have been coming from it's really like the western hegemonic thinking yeah part of the colonial sort of knowledge making system and so forth exactly exactly right. and uh, yeah and also while you know there's been really important thinking that's been done oftentimes i realize that when we make references we don't take from knowledge from other places the world's supposed to open up to allow sort of like multi contextual references and mm-hmm. i think that this book operates that way or actually adds something to that frame of reference yeah i mean my personal take uh, on that is that i think uh, i I like to, I would I personally like to draw attention to uh, the ways the complex ways in which any photograph works and I think there are a lot of people uh, whenever one engages with a photograph uh, I think there are a lot of uh, agents that become active in it mm-hmm. one in uh, and the, the person you know the one who creates the image is merely one agent mm-hmm. uh, and there are also the viewer there's actually the subjects in the images who are also bringing in their own agencies and 
uh, activity, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, in the in the way that we uh, make meanings of images, right? Mm-hmm. And I think uh, my own personal sort of uh, gripe against um, the older uh, post-colonial reading of photography mm-hmm. is that I think we uh, have kind of trained ourselves to pay attention to only one kind of agent in it, which is the it's which is the agency of the makers, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so I think we, I think it's the sort of this idea of the oriental image uh, and the colonial image, which is sort of, you know, the whole study is uh, geared towards understanding the impulses for which the images are made for purposes of governmentality, mm-hmm. for purposes of ruling, for pur- purposes of state control, so mm-hmm. forth. But most, uh, also, most importantly think, is that for a long time, and this is a part of photography that has been largely neglected all the time that in you know when we read photo- photographs like you said is always read from this you know viewpoint of the maker but we forget yeah look at what is happening now with you know instagram for example people are right. using photography themselves people are making photos themselves now photography has always had uh, had a, a social function it's never been about yeah. who who made the photograph as much as it is how it is used and who uses it you know, right. Uh-huh. I mean, I think once it goes out uh, to the public, I think the photograph activates all these other agents. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and those agents participate in the making of the meaning through the images. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, so I think the book really builds on that. I think we, w- the one argument that we are trying to make uh, is that it's really p- particularly important uh, to pay attention to the people that you see within the frame, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. not, the, not the person behind the camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really pay attention to maybe even gestures, mm-hmm. uh, expressions, uh, those kind of things that you see in images. Um, is uh, And I, you'll see that, you know, I think uh, there's a real wonderful book by Tina Kamp mm-hmm. uh, on, uh, I don't know if you know about it, but it's about African diasporic communities in, uh, in Great Britain. Mm-hmm. And also she's looked at Germany. But she also does, a, uh, I read her book recently, and she's done that, uh, a very similar kind of reading, mm-hmm. where she reads into, you know, those uh, uh, passport photographs and also yeah. the photographs of prisoners from mm-hmm. South Africa, where she really examines the musculature of the people in the images mm-hmm. uh, with certain kind of tension or a certain kind of freeze kind of um, pose that the people have in the pictures Mm -hmm. and she does this wonderful reading of it to understand how actually that you can read uh signs of resistance in that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh so i I personally like that kind of engagement photographs you know that there's a photograph whether it's the state taking it whether it's the oppressors or exploiters Mm -hmm. or whoever it is that's taking it for whatever in with whatever intentions uh a photograph always contains um alternative ways of making meaning mm-hmm. that, you know, over, especially over time, you know, a decades later at archival photographs mm-hmm. always has this capacity to activate meanings in very complex ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the book really, you know, you'll, you'll see that the images, especially as you're pointing out, mm-hmm. uh, because the images weren't made by Dalits themselves, mm-hmm. we've had to rely on images made by non-Dalits or foreigners. Mm-hmm. But we really mobilize this kind of way of reading them. Of reading them. Um, and, then, and then what, what one sees yeah. also is like all these documents, for example, that are attempts to put a context. I guess this is a way of saying, look, we have to give an extensive, as much as possible, context to the images. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think uh, the reason why those uh, the documents are 
uh, included in the book. Uh, I, I can think of two reasons why we did it. Mm-hmm. One is to kind of, uh, given that the book uh, by and large is, a, is about photographs, mm-hmm. um, I think we wanted to also make sure that we communicate that the fo- that the photograph is actually part of the documentary world as well. It's it's a kind of a, rec- a, a practice of record making mm-hmm. and record keeping, mm-hmm. uh, and and it's as sort of uh, susceptible to abuses of uh, records as these other documents are. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really wanted to embed photographic practices also uh, part of that world of record and documentary. Uh, document making mm-hmm. uh, um, so we don't see as as much a separation between photographs and documents um, uh, perhaps but this but the second reason I think uh, perhaps and this might be the bigger reason mm-hmm. is that we as practitioners uh, of the visual medium or creators of visual archive we we are under no illusion uh, that th- that everything can be done or communicated through images Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are certain things, certain kind of practices, certain very important elements of the world that we were trying to depict, of uh, both the the life world and the protests of the Dalit people, mm-hmm. that uh, and the history uh, that couldn't be done through photographs. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, that we need other sort of materials to to reflect and to uh, sort of uh, incorporate those elements into the book as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's 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 the second reason I think why we chose to kind of um, overlay the images or sort of, you know, keep the images and the doc- actual documents uh, side by side. Uh, great, great. Uh, so uh, my final question. I know that uh, the Dalit community um, is sort of like encompasses uh, the region. So it goes all the way to mm. India and so many other places. Nepal is only one part eh, of many. Um, so what has yeah. it been so far now? What's the situation now with... Um, you know, some of the conversations happening within that group of people and what are the conditions are like today? And how does a book like this come into, into all of that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, a very important question that you ask, Amika, but also a one that's very complex, uh, difficult to answer, mm-hmm. given that uh, it's something that, as you were explaining, that it sprawls over all of South Asia. And mm-hmm. it's not only in the... Uh, Hindu majority countries, India and Nepal, mm-hmm. but also in Bangladesh, in uh, Pakistan, mm-hmm. in a lot of other areas of the region. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to give a kind of a, a overall sort of, um, um, you know, yeah. profile of of this community because it's it's a really large one. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think uh, the struggle continues. Yeah. I, I think that's that's what I will say. Mm-hmm. Uh, in ma- in many different forms, it continues, and we see. Uh, the repercussions of these battles mm-hmm. uh, in our parliaments, in our constitutions, um, uh, and actually uh, disciplinary practices uh, that we're beginning to see that government sort of exercise more and more mm-hmm. in our countries. Uh, a lot of them are actually directly engaged with these issues of um, uh, these battles around social justice mm-hmm. and battles uh, launched and led by Dalit people. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at India, I think some of the major kind of um, uh, issues um, that that is sort of um, uh, that the that the public of India is sort of grappling with at, at the at the moment has to do with the Dalit movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and the future, and and I think the more importantly, the the possibilities in these very bleak times uh, for democracy. In India and in Nepal and other places of South Asia, 
Uh, I personally, I really think that some of the uh, solution to the problems we feel as uh, democracies will come from the Dalit movement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I, I'm not being merely optimistic, uh, sanguine about this. I really think uh, there's some there are things that are happening within the Dalit community and the kind of um, the fights that the Dalit community launches mm -hmm. um, that uh, I really think is going to, if any answer is going to be found, it's it has to emerge from there. Wow, uh, this is this is interesting. It's it's in line with what I usually say, and sometimes also discuss with friends and colleagues that you know all those places have been considered dark places. You know, will become spaces of freedom. I think those of us who do pay attention to uh, the art, the kind of articulations. Uh, and the movements that are f f congealing and forming mm -hmm. around around the Dalit movement, mm -hmm. I think we really see promise that uh, if there is light at the end of the tunnel mm -hmm. of the times we are in, mm -hmm. uh, that it really has the capacity to show us the light. On that note, actually, it is it suffices that this book exists because I think that <laughs> yeah yeah you know <laughs> because I think that uh, in the future it will be revisited over and over again. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you, thank this, you for this was a this was my pleasure. Yes, yes, same here, same here. So, um, take good care, and of course, uh, hopefully, we're going to speak next time. Huh? Yeah, I hope so. Very soon. All right, uh, and stay safe. All right, bye bye. Yeah. Bye. All right, so that was Divas Raja, and a very very insightful conversation about the book Dalit. A quest for dignity. He said it all. This is what I enjoy about such dialogue and such conversations. It begins, first of all, with my thinking. And then I reach out to someone who basically has a broader, deeper grasp of the conversation or the situation or the material that we're discussing, in this case, the book. So yeah, that's basically it for today. However, what I want to say, though, is that the intro music for today comes from a track. I put together just a few days ago. It is called Little Gestures as a way of reminding myself that life is not always about scale or quantity. Great things often begin little and they come sometimes as sparks, you know, sparks of creativity, sparks of generosity. And if we should think of how interconnected and relational our world is, then indeed little drops of water can make a mighty ocean. So yeah, Little gestures, I leave you with the full track. But before I go, please check out our Patreon page, gatapodcast.com slash Patreon to see how you can support the project. Thank you for listening and see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Thank you.